the one who has rescued my soul. I don't know if you've ever had a point in your life where you knew you needed rescuing. Like if somebody like literally rescued you from a time when you were in danger, you are forever indebted to that person. Our family was on vacation a couple weeks ago and we had this opportunity on the Arkansas River to like climb this big rock and jump off of it. And all the people in our family were doing it. And so I was at the bottom of this rock to greet my children, but because they were jumping off one at a time, I had to double back to make sure that they felt like they were okay. And I found myself at a point where I was having to swim upstream in a life jacket that I had not fully sized. And so have you ever had a life jacket that was not helping you, but it was drowning you? Like it was risen all the way up. And I couldn't, not only could I not see, but I couldn't move. So it took everything with my body to swim upstream. And I was like, if I could just get to my brother, he can grab my hand and I'll be all right. And I didn't feel like I was in danger for my life, but I was, I got to the point where I kept going under the water and it was completely and entirely unnerving. And I said, all I have to do is get there. And if I can get there, I'll be okay. And some of us know what it's like to feel like we're drowning emotionally, mentally, spiritually. And there's a point in our lives we could point to where the hand of Jesus Christ extended to us and grabbed us by the arm and pulled us out of the muck and the mire that we're in. And if you can point to that moment in your life, you, you can sing this with great joy. And if you cannot point to a moment in your life where that happened, there's good news. That moment is available to you too. We're gonna to talk about that later today. But let's pray and thank God for being the one who rescues our souls and welcomes us home. Father God, you, you are Father. You love us in spite of all of our reckless and obnoxious and short-sighted and selfish choices. And because you care for us, you are pursuing us, you're chasing us, you're redeeming us, you're piecing together all of the little broken snippets of our past and our present you're inviting and preparing and calling us to a bold new future. So God, in these moments, remind us that you are, in fact, who you say you are. And I pray, Lord, that for those of us who have not yet met you in a real and a powerful way, you would open our eyes and you would draw our hearts close to yours. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I heard a friend say she cheats when she reads novels. She reads the first few pages to get a feel for the characters and the plot, and then she skips and reads the last few pages so she knows how it's going to end. Um, this is wrong. It's called cheating. I, I remember thinking, um, then why would she bother to read the middle? There's, there's no curiosity. There's no, there's no tension. There's no plot development. There's no mystery left. But some people say, if I know where the arc is going, I can appreciate the journey more. If I know where it's headed, I can, fully, I can fully appreciate all of the details in the middle. Now, when some people talk about the end, the end of history, the end of humanity, the end of the world as we know it, they tend to fall along a spectrum. There's some people who object that there is an end at all. They go, that's not true. There's no greater narrative. There's no greater purpose. There's no bigger backstory to humanity. There's just us. My family saw a movie this last weekend and Later went on to find out more about one of the actresses, a, a Scottish actress by the name of Karen Gillan. And she was interviewed for a, a publication and the journalist said, are you religious? She said, not at all. My family's Catholic, but I don't practice any religion. And then he asked her a very leading question. He said, so we're just minuscule dots in the vast cosmic emptiness of the universe? And she said, yes. 
And if you believe that, then there's, there's, no, there's no plot line for our lives or the greater universe. But on the other end, there are people who are so fully obsessed with the when and the how and the why of the end of the world, they, they do some very unhealthy and unwise things. In the most extreme examples, there are fringe religious groups whose apocalyptic vision drives them to violence or self-harm. So denial of the end is not healthy. Obsession with the end is not healthy. There's a, there's a middle ground. Let's be clear. Jesus does tell his disciples that human history is moving towards a climax, towards a moment of reckoning. But here's the wrinkle. We cannot and will not know when that is going to happen. And I think that God in his sovereignty does that for at least two different reasons. God doesn't do it because if we knew the day, some of us would delay making the most important decisions of our lives because we think that the clock is still running. In our house, we have a little visitor who comes every December 1st called Elf on a Shelf. Anybody else have Elf on a Shelf who comes to their house? Ours is his name, Snowflake. Um, Snowflake was designed by toy makers to intimidate and shame children into godly behavior in the days leading up to Christmas. Now, does anybody else find it ironic that Elf on a Shelf doesn't arrive in the middle of July? It's as if we tell children that they can do whatever they want for 11 months out of the year, but come December 1, they better get their act together. If God said, hey, the day is coming and it's two years out, many of us would say like, oh, sweet, I got 23 months to do whatever I want, but I'll turn it all around at the last minute. So some of us, we delay, and then others of us, if we were to know when the day was coming, and if the time was short, we would be led immediately into despair. How many of you rolled into high school one day in the middle of chemistry, they're like, there's a pop quiz, and you're like, it's over. I'm just going to go ahead and put F on the paper right now, because there's just no time for me to turn this around. I, I don't know what's going to happen. Or actually, I do know what's going to happen. I'm not prepared, and this is going to end badly. Some of you may have come from a particular theological tradition, and you remember that there was a teacher who was popular in certain doctrinal circles who said that the second coming of Jesus was going to come the second week of September 1988. And I remember this very clearly because I had a sibling that shall remain unnamed that was attending a private Christian high school in suburban Chicago at that time. And let's say she was having some challenges with her teachers and administrators that were resulting in disciplinary action. And I remember my father was frustrated in how teachers were handling this particular scenario and was concerned about his daughter's well-being as he should have. And because they were threatening some new form of punishment for my sister, and it was fall of 1988, my dad said this, <laughs> and he's not usually like a cynical or a callous person. He's really, um, he's got his PhD in mechanical engineering. He's very methodical. He doesn't get emotional. He doesn't have high highs or low lows. But I'll remember this one day, he looked up from his breakfast cereal and he said, well, it doesn't matter what we do anyway, because Jesus is coming back on Thursday. <laughs> and it was as if to say, ah, it doesn't matter. Like the clock is running, and if he, doesn't really, if he really doesn't come back, it doesn't matter if she gets attention or not, because it's all over. The, game, the, the jig is up. And I believe that God doesn't tell us out of wisdom so that we don't delay and so that we don't despair, but so that we live with a sense of focus and intention and urgency. The question many of us are asking is, if we don't know when the end is coming, how do we live between the known now and the unspecified then? And the answer is we live in faithful hope. And we can because according to the prophet Joel, the end includes these promises, a promise of retribution, a promise of restoration, and a promise of resurrection. Let's look at the text together. 
Joel says, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah, which is a region, and Jerusalem, its capital city, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I will put them on trial for what they did to my inheritance, my people Israel, because they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my lands. They cast lots for my people. They traded boys for prostitutes. They sold girls for wine to drink. Now what have you against me, Tyre and Sidon, and all you regions of Philistia? Are you repaying me for something I have done? If you're paying me back, I will swiftly and speedily return on your head what you have done. For you took my silver and my gold and carried off my finest treasures to your temples. You sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks that you might send them far from their homeland. God is saying, you, you nations of Tyre and Sidon, you're guilty of violence and war crimes. You have stolen what doesn't belong to you. You've taken land. You have trafficked young men and women. You've stolen all of the articles of worship from God's house. And God is saying, everyone who has wronged me and my people in the lifetime of Joel the prophet, they will pay a price for what they've done. And God says, rest assured that every injustice that you see in your lifetime, that we lament in our news cycle, human trafficking, sex crimes, racism, every single one of those at the individual and systemic level will be addressed by God one day. The day of the Lord promises retribution. God will call every person and every group to account for the wrong they have done. It's the day where God gets even. Verse 7, God says, See, I'm going to rouse them out of the places to which you sold them, and I will turn, re return on your own heads what you have done. I'll sell your sons and daughters to the people of Judah, and they'll sell them to the Sabaeans, a nation far away. The Lord has spoken. Now, for God to respond in kind to what the people of Tyre and Sidon have done to the people of Judah feels a little dark, doesn't it? One biblical scholar says, it's possible that God uses language that is so intense because the people of Joel's audience experience something so traumatic and God needs to match their level of emotional grief with future justification and vindication. Verse 9, proclaim this among the nations, prepare for war, rouse the warriors, let all the fighting men draw near and attack. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weaklings say, I am strong. Come quickly, all you nations, from every side and assemble there. Bring down your warriors, Lord. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come trample the grapes for the wine press is full and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, you might recognize some of the themes here. And if you're not, allow me to explain. Prophets often use harvest language when they speak about judgment. They're saying God is going to take a sickle to harvest evil. Evil has reached its point. It's time for it to end. And the wine press often denotes an abundance of wickedness on the part of a, of a city or a nation. And we see these images again in another prophetic letter that was written by the Apostle John centuries later. 
Revelation 14 says, The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. It says, On the day of the Lord, instruments of peace, like plows and pruning hooks, will become instruments of war. But once God calls individuals, groups, and nations to account, something strange happens. It says that the swords get turned back into plows again. That the imagery of the day of the Lord isn't indefinitely violent. There is a time-bound judgment, and when it is over, the day of the Lord moves from wrath to restoration. Listen to a passage of Scripture from Isaiah and also from Micah. Two prophets who were speaking to the same generation of God's people. Isaiah 2 says, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and nations, the people groups, will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law, the truth of God, the revelation will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Micah 4, verses 1 through 4 says this, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, which is Zion, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train. They're not going to practice for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. Um, do these sound familiar at all? Like, I don't know if you noticed, but there's almost 98% similarity between Isaiah's vision of the day of the Lord and Micah's version of the day of the Lord. So there's a couple different theories. One is that Isaiah copied Micah's homework, or vice versa. That one, somebody was first, and the other guy was just like, oh, that's great, I'm going to tweet that out. Or there's another possibility, which is this, that God needed the same group of people to hear the same information from two different voices at the same time, and God revealed a very vivid picture to both men independently of what the day of the Lord was going to look like. God will settle all the accounts. This is what Joel is saying. Hold on. The day of the Lord brings retribution when it is called for. And if you heard our lead pastor, Craig Reese's message earlier in the series, you know that judgment comes on God's timeline and not ours. You ever been driving down a highway and you were speeding and you realize that the officer whose patrol car was in the underpass saw you before you saw him? Do you ever have those moments where you're like, yeah, you just, before the lights even come on, you just pull over and you pull out your license and registration. You're like, yeah, this is over. You got me. I'm in trouble. Look, can I just pay my $400 and get this over with? So sometimes that happens. You break the law and immediately upon doing so, there is judgment. But sometimes there's a delay. My wife Kelly and I had visited my parents in the town that I grew up in, in suburban Chicago, many, many times. But something changed between one set of our visits, and that's this. They added camera enforcements to one of the red lights at the intersection near my parents' home. 
And one night we were coming home late, late, late from a different part of town where we were visiting Kelly's sister. We pulled up to the red light. I won't say who's, who, who was driving. I'll let you uh, kind of come up with that on your own. But um, whoever was operating the vehicle decided not to come to a full stop because it was late. There was nobody else there. We kind of did the rolling stop at a red light. So you slowed down and then you turned right. And um, nothing, didn't think anything of it until like two months later, we got a ticket in the mail from the, from the county. And they're like, oh, we, we took your picture. You broke the law. It just took us a while to process this. Now you owe us money. And sometimes God's judgment is immediate, and sometimes his judgment is deferred. Have you ever noticed that when you want God to judge somebody else, you want God's judgment to be immediate, but whenever God is judging you, you want that judgment to be deferred? We all have a double standard in how God's wrath operates, do we not? But I think that some of us say, why? Why does God wait? And some of you are familiar with that verse in Peter where he just says, it's not God's desire for what? For anyone to perish, but for all to come to a knowledge of the truth. Many of us, have experienced deep heartache. We have been wronged by somebody that we trusted or respected. And maybe you have forgiven that person, but you still have to deal with the fallout of their choices. And in your honest moments with God, you ask this question, Lord, why'd you let them get away with it? And I believe that Joel's promise of the day of the Lord reminds us that we can forgive deep offenses and at the same time know that that injustice will one day be resolved in God's wisdom and in God's time. Verse 14, multitudes, multitudes, bunches of people in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will be darkened. The stars will no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and heavens will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people. A stronghold for the people of Israel. Yes, the day of the Lord promises retribution, but it also promises restoration. God brings those who trust him back to the place that they belong. If, if the day of the Lord is the day when God gets even, it's also the day when God gets back that which was taken from the people he loves. Joel says, even though in the midst of tragedy God felt far, on the day of the Lord he will feel abundantly near. On that day, he will be a refuge from the devastation, the darkness, the disappointment, and the despair. On that day, he will be a stronghold to protect the weak and vulnerable from further attack. On that day, he will be a restorer of lost dreams, shattered innocence, and fractured hopes. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Some scholars think that Joel is speaking about a symbolic valley. This is just kind of generic spiritual imagery. Others think that he's speaking about a literal valley. And they believe that the J valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley of decision, is the Kidron Valley, a valley that sits right outside of Mount Zion and right in between the temple and the Mount of Olives. The Kidron Valley is where Israel would have crowned their kings. We read in 1 Kings chapter 1 that David's son Solomon was anointed king in the valley. And when a king was crowned in the valley, he invariably made his way up out of the valley to the city of gates. This is the moment of decision. If the people receive the king, they welcome him with celebration. And if they don't, they reject him. When we understand this, we realize that it's no accident that Jesus came down from the Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley, the valley where kings are crowned, and then made his way back up to Jerusalem, the city of Zion. And what did the crowds do in that day? The crowds cheered him as their 
coming king. Now, they, they quickly turned on him just a few days later, but in that moment, they understood what all of that pageantry, all of that symbolism meant. Some of us are in the valley of decision today. Maybe we've heard the message of Jesus Christ, a story of a person that was both fully God and fully human, who walked this earth to identify with our struggles and our challenges, our loneliness, our temptations, and our pain. Someone who died a horrific death that he did not deserve so that you and I could be spared the judgment that our behavior requires. He was buried on a Friday and rose again that first Easter Sunday to declare victory over sin and death and hell forever. And we have to decide whether we will welcome him as king or not. At some point in our lifetime, every single one of us have to decide if Christ will be king or if I will be king. And in just a few moments, I'm going to ask you to Consider that question and make a decision. Verse 17 says, When all this happens, then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. It will be set apart. Never again will foreigners invade her. In that day, the mountains will drip with new wine and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. And then listen to this. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of Acacias. But Egypt will be desolate, Edom a desert waste, because of violence done to the people of Judah in whose land they shed innocent blood. Judah will be inhabited forever and Jerusalem through all generations. Shall I, I leave their innocent blood unavenged? No, I will not. And then Joel ends his whole letter with this declaration, the Lord dwells in Zion. The day of the Lord doesn't just promise retribution and not just restoration. The day of the Lord promises resurrection. God declares the power of life to that which is dead. It's the day when God gets beyond the world that we can see to one that we can't even yet imagine. So here's one question. It says that God is going to destroy a bunch of nations and protect one. So let's deal with this tension momentarily. Is God ethnocentric? Is there only one country, one ethnicity, one people group that God loves? He rails against Tyre, Sidon, Philistia, e Egypt, and Edom. Are they excluded from the table? At the day of the Lord, will they get a seat in the family of God, or are they left out in the cold? Isaiah chapter 19 says this, The Lord will strike Egypt with a plague. He will strike them and heal them. They will turn to the Lord and he will respond to their pleas and heal them. And that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, two known empires that were enemies of Israel. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. And that day Israel will be the third along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord will bless them saying, blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. It's time out. Joel says Egypt's going to be left desolate. Isaiah says Egypt's going to be called God's people. Which is it? My interpretation is that maybe God will bring empires, systems, superpowers that have opposed God and his purposes to their knees. 
but he will redeem individual people represented by those countries and governments who repent and confess. He's going to pull them in. So maybe all of the machinery of these governments is going to get obliterated because no one will stand to challenge God in the final day. But innocent people who have found their way back to God will be enveloped into the people and the purposes of God. That God will bring empires to their knees, but draw people to his heart. There's one image of resurrection I want you to grasp, and it's this one. It's a fountain. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of trees. This idea of life-giving water isn't unique to Joel. We found it in Ezekiel, and we found it in John's vision of a new earth as well. Ezekiel 47 says this, The man, he's talking about an angel that he sees in a vision of the future, brought me back to the entrance of the temple, God's house. And I saw water coming out from underneath the threshold of the temple towards the east. The temple is facing east. The water comes down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out through the north gate and led me around to the outside of the outer gate facing east. And water was trickling from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits. It's about a third of a mile. And then he led me through water that was ankle deep. So the first part of the, this river is like a zero depth. It's like a kiddie pool. Then he measured off another third of a mile and led me through water that was up to my waist. Then he measured off another thousand for about a mile out the city at this point. And now it was a river that no one could cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. And he said, son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. And he said, the water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. This is language of resurrection. If you've ever been to the Dead Sea, you know that the the salt levels are so high that nothing can live in it or around it. If you were to put a fish or a plant in or close to the Dead Sea, it would, it would die almost immediately. And, is, and he is saying water is going to flow out of the house of God. It's going to be deep and wide, and it's going to make dead things live. See how this mirrors what we read in Revelation 22. John says, then the angel showed me a river of the water of life. Did John and Ezekiel get to talk to the same individual? We're not sure. As clear as crystal, almost exactly like Lake Makatawa. <laughs> Thanks for rolling with me on that one. I appreciate that. Flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood what? Trees. There's water that's nourishing trees, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. The nations are going to be devastated by their wrongdoing. But on the other side of that judgment, there is healing. There's resurrection. There's restoration. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They'll see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. If you are walking with Jesus, the idea of the day of the Lord pulls you past fear and into hope. The day of the Lord calls you to hope in a world that you can't yet see. It invites us to acknowledge 
if it's true that we're separated from God, that that happened. To admit, God, I, through my actions, through my thoughts, through my words, I've created space, distance between you and me. And now I found myself in a place that I don't, I don't like and I can't get out of. When we say that, when we tell ourselves the truth and we tell God the truth, there's an opportunity for us to be rescued. There's a chance for us to be welcomed back home again. Jesus invites us to leap out of the dust of death into the water of life right now and to experience the mercy and the power that comes with walking with him. This whole idea of water, living, pure, life-giving water. How did we start the book of Joel? We started it in the aftermath of an army invasion or a locust plague or a version of both. So at the beginning of the book of Joel, when people look out in their landscape, what do they see? They see a wasteland. There's no vegetation. There's no life. There's no hope. And at the end of the book of Joel, he says what? He goes, I'm going to take all this dust and I'm going to turn it into water. I'm going to replenish your very souls. And so the day of the Lord has kind of two images that go with it. The first image is fire. That God is going to burn down everything that doesn't belong. And then the other image is water. That God's going to refresh and reboot and restore, which is why we're so excited that today, in just a couple hours, we're going to be selling, celebrating baptisms on the beach of Lake Michigan, and that over 60 people who call Central Home are going to say, I am stepping in to the living water of Jesus Christ, and that in the act of baptism, I am identifying myself with the death of Jesus Christ. I am choosing to symbolically die to all of the things that used to bring me death. All my addictions, all of my impulses, all of my cravings that took me to dark places, all of my selfishness, all of my ego, all of my pride, in being baptized, I'm saying I'm dead to that. And I've been buried with Jesus Christ. And then because of his grace and because of his power, I am raised to new life in him and with him. One of my favorite verses that kind of captures the essence of baptism is found in Galatians chapter 2 where the Apostle Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. And the old me no longer lives, but the life I live now, I live by faith in Jesus Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. See, many of us, we came from traditions that tried to compel us to follow God out of sheer fear, terror, and intimidation. I don't know about you, but whenever I went to youth group and I heard movies about the day of the Lord, they were designed to petrify us into repentance. But what, is the, what does the word of God say? It doesn't say that it's terror of God's judgment that draws us to repentance. It says that it's God's, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It is the guarantee of God's mercy his sensitivity, his sweetness that leads us to repentance, that leads us to change. And I want, I really do believe that the scriptures say, yeah, there is a day of judgment. And we, we, we don't whitewash that. But the good news is we don't have to fear that day because God opens the door for us to be restored, not later, but right now.